2: Thursday morning, the 30th of June. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Sinn Féin President Mary Lou MacDonald Northern Ireland's First Minister designate Michelle O'Neill. The Sinn Féin spokesperson on finance, Pierce Doherty, along with the party's spokesperson on housing, own O'Brien will be in Dundalk this evening along with local Sinn Féin TDs. The leadership is holding a public meeting in the first Airways Hotel at half seven. There, they say they will outline the need for a change of government. And uh, the party president Mary Lou Macdonald joins us now. And uh, a very good morning to you, and thank you indeed for joining us on the program. As always, is it not too soon to be electioneering?
3: Uh, well, good morning, Michael. Um, uh, well, uh, it's 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 never too soon to be out and about meeting people um, and listening to people. And I think there is a, a particular need now coming out on... and the back of what have been very difficult years for people in the, in the, in the midst of a, a cost-of-living crisis. I think it's very important that people hear from, see, have access to, and, and most importantly, are listened to by those of us who uh, represent them in the doll. So I'm very much looking forward to this evening's meeting and I hope people come along. Uh, and we're there to set out the stall to talk about the kind of change that we need to see uh, right across Ireland Um, but also to listen to what people have to say because I have an increasing sense of a real disconnect between the government that we currently have and the experiences of people out on the ground. And that's been made very clear to me, Michael, over recent days when we have advanced the argument for an emergency budget, for interventions, just to give breathing room to families and workers at this time, and we've got the most incredible pushback from government, from Fianna Fáil, from Fine Gael, from the Greens, who say through one side of their mouth that they know that people are struggling and struggling really badly, but who say, however, they are not prepared to do anything about it, not until at least, they say, October. And for families that are struggling, or for lots of families now that will be looking at the prospect of trying to get children Back to school in in September, and I know booklets mm. started to arrive yesterday. Mm. You know, October is simply too late. So I think okay. that. You,
2: well, you represented Fein voters uh, in uh, the motion and the debates last sure. night, but a lot of people voted for these other parties, uh, and I know. Yep. Uh, and they com- comfortably won the vote. Uh, your 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 motion was uh, well and truly defeated.
3: It was, um, but le- let me tell you this: that uh, not one member of the opposition, of any party, mm. or uh, or amongst the independents, actually backed the government last night. And mastered.
2: fair enough, but it, it was inevitable. That, uh, it was inevitable that it was going to be defeated, and it could be argued that it was an awful waste of dull time.
3: I don't accept that. I think what would be a, a, an awful thing is if we, as elected representatives of the people, did not go in and advocate on their behalf and put up a a very, very strong case and a very strong defence of the people that we represent. And those, by the way, who may not have voted for us in the last election, but who nonetheless are at their wit's end at this stage and really wondering how it is that they're going to manage things through the summer into the autumn and into the uh, winter. The more extraordinary thing I would say, Michael, is that a government that says they know that things are really, really bad for families out on the ground who who boast and almost brag about, you know, high levels of employment, that the economy is in good shape. The government, by the way, has taken in more than €5 billion more in tax revenues than they had predicted on Budget Day.
2: And the government says it's it's in the process of of planning how to spend that uh, and to to look after people going into the winter. Uh, Michael McGrath, the Minister for Public Expenditure, told you yesterday that if he was to introduce a mini-budget now, you'd say it's not enough and you'd want A mini budget. Uh, Let's hear what the Taoiseach had to say to you about it on Tuesday.
4: What we want to do is something comprehensive that matters to people, not just this month, but right throughout the winter period. it's It's going to be a very difficult winter, and we need a very comprehensive set of measures to help people get through that, because we understand fully, and it's not good enough for you to say that people on this side of the house are being dismissed. We are not. We, we share yeah, as much as the pain and concern that people have out there and we are as concerned about people out there as you are and are anybody else is. Yep.
2: That's the Taoiseach. As I said to Rory O'Muraku on the programme yesterday, I think it was, most of us are going around in our houses with the windows open because it's too warm. When the winter comes, we'll be turning on the heat. The bills are going to go through the roof. They'll be unaffordable. The government is planning uh, ways of helping to cope with that. Is that not the prudent approach? And in the interim, to see how much worse it gets.
3: Well, look, um, you see, the, 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 the fact is that uh, Micheál Martin, for, for all of that luster, and, and Michael McGaugh and others, every member of government and their backbenchers, are being dismissive, not just of the case that I am making in the all as the leader of the opposition, but of uh, the case that is being made repeatedly to them by people out on the ground, in communities, the length and breadth of the land and who are dealing with people. I mean, I I quoted to him from his own bailiwick, uh, Katrina Toomey, who runs uh, Penny Dinners, her her outline of of what she's meeting every day. I set out for him the experience out in Loughlinstown here in Dublin uh, of a woman who works on the front line for Bernardo, setting out, like I mean, really, really upsetting details of families and how badly they're struggling. To the extent, Michael, that... Kids are turning up wearing (coughs) pyjamas as their daytime clothing, and it's bought specifically for that. Now, I know every family isn't struggling to that extent. I I know that, that it's a varied picture. But I also know that the vast majority of families are under pressure, and many, many families Mm. are just under the most extraordinary pressure. So here's the question. We, We will have the budget as per normal in uh, October. That's well, the standard re- budget. Reports this morning
2: that it may be in September.
3: Fair enough. Well, in, in the autumn time. Um, as I said to <coughs> the ministry yesterday, children go back to school at the end of August and into early September, but generally speaking at the end of August. So to say to any parent, for example, to take a case in point, who is worried about books and uniforms and getting a child or a number of children back through the gates in late August saying that you will do something unspecified in October is not worth a hill of beans to That's just the practical reality, and that's the point that I have tried to make.
2: Okay, and you'll be... Time and
3: again with representatives of government, they're not prepared to... In fact, they resort Mm. rather to kind of bluster and questioning my motives for raising things that are blindingly obvious. I can't understand mm. and you... why they are resisting so aggressively something that's so obvious okay. necessary. Well... To intervene.
2: Uh, And that's why you say uh, there's a need for change of government. You'll be in Dundalk making that argument uh, this evening. You want Sinn Féin to lead the next government and you want to be the next Taoiseach. Yesterday in the Dáil, the Minister for Justice, Alan McEntee, asked members to vote in favour of continuing the offences against the State Act, which allows for the Special Criminal Court. Sinn Féin abstained. Uh, As Taoiseach, if you become Taoiseach, Uh, will you abolish the offences against the State Act?
3: Well, I I very much hope that the review into the offences against the the State Act and the special courts will actually be back with us in in the coming months, and we will see the reform and the beefing up and the proper resourcing of the whole apparatus uh, of justice to deal with gangland, to deal with the misery and devastation that that brings to communities. So you don't have a policy on that, that at the moment? No, no, we do have a policy on it. We have a very strong policy on but it. That and ma- our policy, let me summarise our policy. Firstly, special powers and special courts, emergency powers, simply don't cut it now. If anybody imagines that the phenomenon okay. of organised crime and gangland crime is just a passing phenomenon, this, sadly, I hate to tell you, is here to stay, and it needs...
2: Okay, well, Shephabe was always opposed to it because it was introduced uh, for the purposes of putting members of the the IRA on trial. Will you you abolish the offences against the State Act?
3: What we will do, and and I hope that this government, I hope it won't uh, have to take a change of government for this to happen, because there is some urgency in this, is we will read and study the review that's underway. And by the way, all parties agreed that this business of emergency powers and renewing them year on year is is ridiculous. What you need is a modern, responsive court system that's properly resourced. I hope the review will bring forward the proposals. Hear me out, Michael. Bring forward the proposals that can deliver that. And for us in government, or whether I'm still leading the opposition, that is what I want to see. And furthermore, let me say, I accept and Sinn Féin accept that as part of that response, the issue of juryless courts is a legitimate part of that. It's not the only part of it. It has to have proper oversight. It has to be compliant to the rules of natural justice and due process and all of those things. But but there is more to it than just that. Okay, so ju- jury,
2: the way, juryless the proper, courts... The
3: proper resourcing of, of the Garthi and other uh, law enforcement... Okay, states.
2: so juryless courts has a place... Uh, in a country led by a Sinn Feng government. Um, you said it's not too soon, uh, forgive me for paraphrasing, uh, you said it's not too soon um, to start uh, electioneering. Uh, I think the electioneering has already begun and maybe if you'll bear with me again for a minute, we'll hear a little bit from Leo Ratker.
5: You host dinners in America, you charge people $1,000 a plate to attend and your party leader flies first class to get there. That's what you do in the middle of a, of a cost of living crisis, and I believe she's about to announce another first-class trip to Australia, uh, which oh. she'll be undertaking uh, in the next um, the next uh, um, uh, couple of weeks, where she'll be um, clinking champagne glasses with uh, the Trinity alumni in uh, Australia and uh, meeting the Australian Business Association. So that's a cheap shot, particularly coming from. A hypocritical party like yours, a party that receives millions of donations from vagabonds uh, who live in a caravan, a party that please, is please. one of the biggest landlords in the state. I want to do without interruption please. Uh, and, uh, and a person who operates his constituency please. office using public money from some sort of Republican company. So cheap shots, particularly coming from you, um, should be seen as what they are from the Irish people.
2: mary Lou MacDonald, uh, do you think that sets uh, the tone for the debate in the run-up to the next election?
3: Well, I think uh, your listeners can hear from that and ascertain just how much pressure the Tánisdá and Taoiseach, hopefully, of Varadkar is uh, under there. Um, by the way, that exchange happened because uh, Pierce had the temerity to challenge him on the cost of living realities, and clear, clearly Leo Vradkar didn't like that. He, he doesn't like to be. Mm, and that the DBP is looking at Leo
2: Vradkar, but that Pierce already had been convicted uh, of. Uh, well, look, well,
3: look, look, and that happened over 20 yeah, years. Yeah, and that's why I didn't play it.
2: That's why I left that part No, mm.
3: no, but Michael, let me say, that's a matter of public record. Okay, but did, do, do
2: you fly first class to
3: Australia? No, I don't. And let me tell you, I've never actually flown first class anywhere in my life. This is a gas um, I, I, I We do fundraise in America and there is a real issue for Fianna Fáil and Fine It's actually bitterness and jealousy because Fianna Fáil and Fine both of them, just so as listeners know, attempted at different points to fundraise themselves in America and it was a, a spectacular flop and I'll tell you why. What Americans, what the Irish in America are interested in is the Irish project, Peace in Ireland, the Good Friday Agreement and Irish reunification. So the reason why Sinn Féin successfully engages with uh, America is because they know that as a political party, we are serious about the peace process, the reunification process, and they want to support that. All of that is governed by layers and layers of regulation and law. Which is respected to the letter, every I dotted, every T crossed. And by the way, the people who come to our events are labour unions. There are people who work in um, in the legal profession. Some of them are in construction. They're in okay. Uh, and, the the and the Australian and the Australian business events. and
2: the Australian Business Association.
3: So the Australian Business Association is actually the Australian Chamber uh, of Commerce. Okay. And again. This is uh, largely, in fact, they have been in Ireland uh, on a visit last week. They were in Dublin, in Belfast. Mm. These are people in business, Irish people in business.
2: Okay, and but they you, look,
3: you, sorry, you, let me explain okay. who they are because you, sure. Leo more attempted to throw the book at us here. He did. They yeah. look for they look for business opportunities and partnership and cultural opportunities between Australia and Ireland. They're regular five-eights people who work hard and who have done well. And by the way. I'm a graduate of Trinity College, uh, as it happens. That's where I went to university. And the college uh, alumni have asked me to come and speak at an event in, in um, Sydney. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, it will not involve champagne or clinking glasses. I'm very pleased to go and talk to people, very many of whom, by the way, are living in Australia, living far away from home because of the mess that Fine Gael and others made. I'm happy to go and meet them. I will be flying economy class. Okay. I'll fly into Perth and I will work my way across Australia. I'll do two weeks of that and I will talk to people in Australia in politics, in business to explain what's happening in Ireland and also uh, as part of the preparation for in the event and I don't take this for granted but if it is a thing that we are honoured with the opportunity of being in government or leading government I'm very conscious that I at this stage have to lay the ground internationally to explain our thinking to explain what needs to get done, and, and, and crucially, to keep that connection with the wide, global Irish family who are incredible people, many of whom left voluntarily for adventure and opportunity, many, many of whom, uh, the governments were practically packing their cases to see them off because they, they didn't see that they had an opportunity or a chance here. And I really hope, Michael, mm-hmm. that many of those people that I'm talking to down under at, at some stage will see a pathway and an opportunity to come back home.
2: Okay. well, you'll be speaking to people in in Ireland. in the Fairways Hotel at half past seven this evening in Dundalk. We leave it there. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. That's uh, the Sinn Féin president, Mary Lou MacDonald. Michael
6: Michael Reid on on LMFM.
2: Well, good news for low-paid workers in uh, the hospitality sector uh, this week uh, with uh, the payment of wages, tips and gratuities legislation, meaning that if you tip staff The tip should go to the staff rather than what trade unions have been describing as tip theft up to now and from now on uh, if you're asked to pay for a service charge that or any similar term will mean that the money goes directly to the staff let's speak to tom fitzgerald who's the regional coordinating officer with the unite trade union which represents many people in hospitality good morning to you tom and thank you indeed for joining us on the program this morning welcome news for you and your members
7: Good morning, Michael, uh, and to your listeners. Uh, Indeed, welcome news. Of course, we'll have to see what's in the detail because you haven't seen the bill yet, but uh, on the face of what's been announced, it is welcome news for many of the 160-plus thousand workers across the sector. Mm. Uh,
2: Indeed. Uh, I think that's been uh, the response or a similar response uh, from uh, the industry, uh, the Restaurants Association, uh, saying that they want to see how it will work uh, and uh, that there should be transparency for customers as well as employees.
7: Well, of course, yeah, absolutely. And, um, well, we I know a number of my colleagues have been on your show in the past explaining some of the difficulties that uh, workers in the sector face uh, on a range of issues, including, of course, not getting their tips and not being fair. There's also a significant number, of course, of employers who are very decent in the sector uh, and make sure the staff do get looked after. So for many of those, there won't actually be any significant change. It's for areas where... Um, uh, those bad practices are in place but notwithstanding the fact that the legislation is obviously very welcome uh, it obviously won't be a panacea to fix all ills in those circumstances because you have to then enforce your rights as well and we would argue that the, the best way to enforce your rights of course is to be in a trade union but more importantly to be organised as a group of workers in a workplace uh, and there's more that the the state needs to do in terms of bringing that about uh, so it's very welcome but there's, there's more to be done in the sector
2: Okay, uh, and at this stage, uh, what do you know uh, about service charge? Because I I think a lot of the time that went straight to the restaurant, and it really was a way of upping the price of whatever you were being charged for.
7: Yeah, that's 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 the that our experience as well. Uh, uh, so obviously, uh, the, the the state are going to put something in place that uh, identify that's no longer acceptable. That um, if people are going to decide to give a tip to to, to adequate duty, it should be going mm. directly into the workers' pockets. Uh, and who are the
2: workers, though? Because, uh, I mean, there's a lot of people who service you uh, when uh, you sit down to eat a, a meal. Uh, uh, that includes the uh, dishwasher, the barman, the chef and the waiter.
7: Yeah, no, indeed. And again, that's why I make the point in terms of exactly what the legislation would say, the amount to the payment of the wage act, for it's unclear. Uh, and I understand from you know from dealing with workers in the sector, from having family in the sector, and um, that each enterprise will do things in a slightly different way, and um, that all of those people are Im- involved in the end product, and they should get a share. in, of course, and um, there may be circumstances where particular enterprises do things in a particular way uh, in terms of you know the people who are serving get a portion, the people who are, who are cooking get a portion, uh, bar workers and so on and so forth. But, the, but at the heart of insurance that's fair, it needs to be worker led, and worker led means worker organised in terms of the best way to actually distribute that. You know I mean, mm. there may be questions about those who are on lower paid, or who are on higher pay. And in my experience, where workers get the opportunity to, to regulate their own situation, that's the best case scenario for workers, of course, you know. Mm.
2: Yeah, uh, usually uh, you're lower paid if you get tips, are you
7: not? Yeah, and of course, uh, our starting point would be, someone shouldn't be dependent on tips, uh, rates, and we've put submissions into the low pay commission elsewhere to argue that particular point. But of course, uh, if you were dependent on that, the likelihood is that you are lower paid, and that's the point I'm making mm. about in terms of distribution that it's done in a fair and equitable way. Uh, and, it's, and and the best way for workers to do that is to be organised in the workplace. Mm. And workplace organisation flows best from those people who are members of a trade union.
2: Yeah, uh, and how will you be uh, advising your members uh, if you have people working in bars? or in restaurants, uh, and uh, there's a a service charge uh, that uh, customers are being asked to pay every time uh, they pay their bill, Uh, how will you be advising your members uh, to uh, be sure uh, about how much the restaurant is being paid in service charge? Uh, That's going to be a difficult question to answer, isn't it, unless the restaurants open up their books?
7: Yeah, well, I mean... so that I understand the question completely, Michael, there's two kind of two ways to answer that. Because we'll have obviously members across uh, all sectors of the economy. My, uh, myself, if I'm in a restaurant, so I'm fortunate enough to be in and uh, eating now for dinner. I'll always ask the question. Or I'll ask the question and say, well, what's the situation in terms of ensuring that the workers uh, will get this? And most people, most uh, you know, managers and employers are fairly open about that. So I'd encourage people to do that, to make sure the workers get looked after. And then... When, uh, from the worker's point of view in the workforce, uh, again, it's very difficult for an individual worker to ask that question. I'd say, for example, at the point of an interview, because the power relationship is completely unequal. Mm. It's also very difficult, even for the worker, even with positive legislation, it's very difficult for us to be enforced. Uh, and I know I'm sounding like a broken record, but the answer is to be organised so that the power relationship by an individual worker uh, is the, the power relationship, the imbalance in it is addressed by workers working in a combined fashion. And so, well, this announcement, this bill is hugely helpful. It won't address those other issues in the sector: mm. low pay, precarious contracts, and um, harassment, bullying the absence of work-life balance is a range of things and we would say that what will address those things being in the union being organised and actually from a state perspective the fundamental to all of that addressing all those issues that flow from this is full and collective bargaining rights for workers that's the real panacea for workers both in the hospitality sector and across the economy to redress that peril and balance I spoke about
2: Right uh, Well, service charge tips because that's what they are essentially be taxed
7: it be, again, that's uh, I don't know the position on that until we see what the the, the details of the bill are. Um, uh, so uh, we broadly welcome this, but often enough when it comes to legislation, the devil can be in the details. But and there is issues in it that we've difficult we difficulties with. Well, we'll be back to the drawing board in terms of government because uh, as I'm sure you're you've accepted, Michael, some of our leading activists on your uh, radio show in the past, it was you know you activists that were at the heart of of this campaign. So if if there is the difficulties in terms of the detail of the bill, well, I don't think it'll be found one in terms of knocking on government doors and elsewhere to to, to address that. Mm,
2: Because we kind of have an Irish solution to an Irish problem at the moment, don't we, in that, uh, I think, uh, as it stands, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but people who receive tips when they're working should be declaring those tips for tax purposes, but nobody expects them to, on the other hand, uh, and we turn a blind eye to it.
7: Yeah, but, but, but again, uh, uh, the, the issue one way or the other doesn't arise, the proper tank are in place, mm-hmm. I've already mm-hmm. explained to you. Uh, oh no, I understand, but but,
2: but you, you, you'd expect though that if the money is being raised, if the tips are going to staff through a service charge which goes through the books, uh, that there would have to be tax paid on that service charge.
7: Uh, not necessarily. does mean there have been circumstances where the state have had all sorts of interventions, including for a big business, to ensure that taxes, uh, certain uh, uh, elements of money's aren't paid tax upon But, the, but, not, but, but, yeah, be, but
2: they'd have to you know, write that into the bill, wouldn't it? Because this would be income for people. This would be additional income to what they're earning, uh, which is uh, all they earn officially, as things stand, because uh, tips are ignored.
7: Well, actually, uh, it, it's discretionary. That's the point of again here. It is going to be discretionary. So I don't know if it's simple as identifying it as standard income and the treatment the same.
2: Mm. Well, service charge isn't discretionary, isn't it?
7: Well, no. Uh, but again, we I I, I don't know uh, mm. the detail of the bill to comment on, on those nuances. Michael, that's true. I haven't seen, it and yeah. I, I I don't think it has been produced as of yet. So again, we welcome it. We welcome the initiative. We welcome what's being said, but we we we'll, we'll always have that health them with it.
2: Okay, that's one of the things you'll be watching for. I'm sure. Thank you indeed, though, Absolutely. for joining us uh, this morning, Tom. Tom Fitzgerald is the regional coordinating officer with the United Trade Union.
6: Michael Reed on
2: LMFM. Now, Anthony Staines is uh, professor of health systems in DCU's School of Nursing and spokesperson for the Independent Advocacy Scientific Group. It's a uh, while since we last spoke to Professor Staines, uh, but he's back with us to talk about COVID, with 7, 776 people in hospital at 8 o'clock yesterday morning, 31 people in intensive care care and 21 people said to have died with the virus over the past two weeks. Uh, Good morning to you Anthony and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme again. Here we go again I think is probably one way of putting it.
1: It it
8: is one way but the the truth is this time is different because we have very high vaccination rates so the vaccines have effectively reduced the risk of dying the risk of hospitalisation, the risk of being very seriously ill with COVID substantially. They also somewhat reduce the risk of transmission. And it looks like they reduce the risk of a long COVID. They don't, they don't stop transmission, mm. don't stop you getting infected, don't stop you getting long COVID, but they benefit you.
2: Okay, so when we talk about 776 people in hospital, it sounds like a lot of people in hospital, but they may may not be there because of COVID. They may be in hospital because of something else and happen to catch COVID, is it?
8: It's a mixture of things going on. But what often happens is somebody who might have, say, say someone has diabetes and they get COVID. They get sick because of a combination of diabetes and COVID and they end up in hospital. If they didn't have diabetes, they might never go near a hospital. If they didn't have COVID, they might never go near a hospital. But they actually have both, and they end up in hospital. Mm. And you can argue about you know, why they're in hospital. There's, there's a lot of discussion about that. But if there wasn't any COVID around, there'd be a lot fewer people in hospital right now. And that's putting a lot of pressure on the hospital system. It's squeezing out a lot of routine care, non-urgent care. So the waiting lists are growing. And that's really what we're seeing. So these, are not, these are people who need to be in hospital. Mm. Very few people in hospital who don't need to be there. But the, the uh, impact of the high numbers of COVID cases is that the number of beds for other stuff in hospital has gone down. Okay, and that, that's a significant problem.
2: Okay, and the best defence is to get vaccinated. Uh, I suppose most people have been vaccinated. A lot of those vaccines are waning. Uh, and over 65s should have had a second booster. Uh, but there's something like four and a half million vaccines that are, are going to waste. Is that because people aren't taking up that booster?
8: People aren't taking it up. Uh, there's a particular shortage of vaccination coverage in younger children. So, you know, I, w- I would say to parents that COVID is potentially a very nasty disease in children. For most children, it's not. But for some children, it's very nasty indeed. And really, vaccinating children is going to be an important way to reduce the spread in the whole community. It's likely that we'll have a vaccine approved for the under five in later this year in Europe. Uh, and it looks like it will be approved in the states imminently. Um, Once that's available, I think, again, that may, vaccinating those two groups, may change the transmission of COVID quite a lot Mm. in our communities.
2: Okay. instead of allowing those vaccines go out of date uh, and... Uh, throwing them down the toilet. Um, should they be given to people under 65, though? Uh, I think the Minister has asked NIAC to look at that.
8: NIAC are studying that right now, and I don't know what their conclusion will be. My my sense would be probably yes, but they're, they're the experts, and they're going to come back with a recommendation, hopefully very quickly, to the Minister. And the, the other part of that is the, the whole COVAX initiative, which is mm. trying to vaccinate as many people around the world as possible. And that's certainly something that you know, Ireland should be contributing money to, mm. because we, we're one thing that's happening with this is that in countries where vaccination rates are low, uh, we're getting very substantial spread and the development of new variants mm.
2: or, or sending those four and a half million vaccines overseas.
8: The logistics of doing that can be more difficult than you might think, right? So you I, I, you need
2: to ask the, the people mm. in COVAX about that. Okay, uh, so give them to people here then, yes. if yes. that's the case. And I think a lot of people would want them. Uh, I think they should want them. Uh, it's very, very contagious at the moment, or at least it seems to be very, very contagious. Yes. Uh, you may not end up very sick. You may not end up in hospital. You may not die from COVID, yes. uh, but a mild dose of COVID Uh, is really rotten and I say it unfortunately from first-hand experience I was out for over a week and I was on my back with a terrible fever and I wouldn't recommend it to anybody and I wouldn't wish it on anybody and I really thought that I couldn't catch it because I don't do anything I walk across the street from people I wear a mask no matter where I go uh, I'm washing my hands and sanitizing all the time and I thought I was uh, beyond getting COVID but still in all I got it which I, I think to me at least says how contagious it must be.
8: Yeah, it's one of the most contagious viruses that have, have ever been identified. It's almost as contagious as measles. And that that's a real problem. It's, it makes it really hard to control. But our best shot is to try and bring the case numbers down as much as we can. And that means ventilation, air filtration, wearing masks and particularly vaccination. You know, vaccination is not perfect but it greatly reduces your risk of dying. If we, if we hadn't got vaccinations, it isn't 21 deaths a fortnight we'd be having. It'd be 30, 40, 50 deaths a day. So that's a huge win. If, if we didn't have vaccination, we would now be thinking, well, you know, who are we going to ventilate, this person or this person? Because our intensive care units will be full. But mm-hmm. they're not, because we have vaccination. And that just... You know, HSE, HSE deserve incredible credit for getting that vaccination programme up, running and out as quickly as they did. OK. And, huge
2: and is it immunity caused by vaccination and also because people have had the virus?
8: It's probably both, but it, it seems likely the vaccination is more useful because of the way it's given. But the the nat- unfortunately, the nature of this family of viruses is they don't often produce long-lasting immunity. Mm. The other vaccines, if you get measles vaccine, your chance of getting measles is basically zero, or for all practical purposes, for is the rest zero. of your life. Yeah for even, even for something like mumps w- mm. while you have a risk getting vaccine of getting infected again in your 20s if you get mumps vaccine as a child we can actually manage that by giving you a booster dose of mumps vaccine and that seems to work for the rest of your life it's very very effective COVID vaccines and the vi- are just not like that because the virus is not like that it's the nature of the coronaviruses because the, the ones we know about in humans cause a common cold effectively mm. And as you know yourself, you can get repeated colds. Mm. And we know you can get reinfected. We've known for, I don't know, 30 years, you can get reinfected with these coronaviruses. Yeah, well, and It looks like the COVID viruses are the same.
2: Uh, I've spoken to people recently who have had COVID three, four, and five times. Yes. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment uh, and uh, ask people uh, to remember some of uh, the basics uh, themselves uh, about. Uh, keeping distance fe- wearing masks uh, ventilation and keeping their hands sanitized Professor Anthony Staines thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, Anthony Staines is professor of health systems in DCU School of Nursing spokesperson for the Independent Advocacy Scientific Group
6: Michael
2: Reed on LMFM Family Carers Ireland says it represents more than 500 Thousand family carers in this country. Some of uh, those people receive uh, the carers allowance, some don't uh, because uh, the allowance is means tested. Uh, The means test should be abolished uh, according to family carers and Catherine Cox is Head of Communications and Carer Engagement with Family Carers Ireland. Good morning to you Catherine and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. You've been surveying your members and there's a lot of people who are struggling to make ends meet it has to be said.
9: Yeah, that's right, uh, Michael, and thanks for having me on. Um, We did a survey, which is the State of Caring Survey, um, and we ran it this year between January and March, um, and over just under 1,500 family carers uh, took that survey, and of that group, 68% who were surveyed said they were experiencing financial distress, 16% 16% told us they were in arrears on their bills, particularly utility bills, heating, light, um, and 13% were in arrears on their rent or mortgage. So, okay. um, you know, they are really... Carers, family carers are struggling financially and they are also um, struggling um, mentally as well. Um, 23% told us that they're cutting back on essentials like food and heat to make ends meet. So they right. are, are really... Stark and worrying. Very stark
2: and worrying and all the more so when you consider the time frame in which you spoke to people because it was really after that that the prices started to skyrocket.
9: Absolutely. So this was before we had what we have now, our cost of living crisis. So that situation has just worsened. Um, and as I said, family carers are struggling mentally as well, because obviously, like in society, you know, we've gone through a very difficult two and a half years. But for family carers, that time... I believe, was more challenging because they lost day services, uh, schools closed down, respite became almost non-existent overnight and still has not returned, which means that family cares many have been left on their own to care for loved ones without those supports that they had. And in some cases, they didn't, they had far less than they should have, and now they have even less. So it Mm. it really has been uh, extremely difficult um, for, for Ireland's 500 Thousand family carers, mm. and given you know that they save or say twenty billion euro every year, it just shows we really do not value the work of family carers. And we said that we presented to government yesterday with our pre-budget submission, and we said it really is a time for change. We cannot continue to tell carers how great they are, pat them on the back, tell them they're wonderful, they're angels, they're heroes. They're not. They're people doing really difficult jobs. Um, they're extraordinary people, yes, but they're doing really difficult jobs and they're doing it without the support, both financial and practical support that they should have. Um, and so it's time. That's why we feel it's time for change. The carers allowance, the means test in particular, we need to see that abolished. Carers should be paid for the work that they do and the carers allowance should be paid based on needs and not means. And right. that's our big message to, to the government. £20
2: billion. A year. That's an awful lot of money. Uh, it's almost as much as is being spent on the health service, uh, the total budget. It's around 24 billion, I think. Uh, how do carers save the government 20 billion euros?
9: So, So that figure comes from basically if every family carer tomorrow was to down tools and stop caring that would be the replacement cost of care for the people that they care for. Um, so either those people whether it's uh, maybe a child with disability or an older person, if the government was ha- was have to pay for those people to either be cared for at home or to be cared for in a residential or institution that is the cost of that replacement care. Now look, we know mm. that's not going to happen, we know mm. family cares are not going to down tools. They care because the people they're caring for, they love them but they shouldn't have to do that on their own, and that is the message. And you know, family carers are propping up our health services, um, and without them, uh, our health services would be in far worse state. And given that our health services are struggling, particularly over the last two years as well, it's more important than ever mm. that we support. Family-
0: when you're ready to pop the question, the last
3: thing you want to do is second guess the ring.
9: to continue to care for loved ones at home. That's where people want to be cared Mm -hmm. for. Family carers want to do it, but they cannot do it without supports. And if you look at the amount of the carers allowance, and we've said this so many times, carers allowance is €224 per week. Government set the pandemic unemployment payment at €350 per week because they recognise people couldn't live on much less. Yet they expect family carers to live on €224 per week. And they are the family carers that even get that payment because it's means tested. So in the budget, we're asking that the carers allowance be moved up to 325 euro per week as a minimum, and then we are also asking for the means test long term to be abolished and to pay carers for work that they do and support them with practical support like respite. And every carer in this country should be entitled to 20 days respite at a minimum, yet many carers are not entitled to 1
2: one day per year. Right. Um, So people are are staying at home and living off €224 because they don't want their loved one to go into a home Mm -hmm. or into an institution or... Uh, to be cared for in some other way uh, by the state uh, which if it did happen you say would result in a bail of 20 billion euro uh, but uh, they are doing this and they're doing it themselves they're looking after those they love at home mm-hmm. uh, and they're hoping for support obviously in that not just that financial support whether it's 224 mm-hmm. or 325 euro but uh, real support in, in terms of minding uh, the people and caring for them uh, but an awful lot of people are finding it difficult to access services and are on waiting lists and so on as well.
9: Indeed, and our second big ask in the pre-budget is that the government urgently address the huge inadequacy of children disability services. Um, We know there are children on waiting lists for one, two, three, even five years for psychology, occupational therapy, speech and language therapy and physiotherapy. And the same is the situation for adults and older people. So one of the things we've asked for is that they use the National Treatment Purchase Fund to get rid of those waiting lists, eliminate the waiting lists, and then deal with those services. And I know there are problems with recruitment and retention within the health service and the staffing staff are not there, but government needs to find a way because denying children access to those services at crucial time and at an early stage is really denying those children the right to grow to their full potential and it is storing up huge costs for the future because if those children young adults don't get the services and the mental health services Mm. they need now the cost to the state will be far more in the future so it makes moral sense and it makes financial sense to support and to get these families and these children and adults the supports and services that they need.
2: Okay, well, life is difficult. Uh, Making ends meet is difficult for an awful lot of people. Uh, But when you're caring for somebody in your own home, the challenges are all the greater. Catherine, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us as always. Catherine Cox is Head of Communications and Carer Engagement with Family Carers Ireland. Let me bring you some of uh, the comments that have been coming to us uh, this morning. Jane is in Drogheda and she says she doesn't consider herself to be uh, a Sinn Féin supporter but she says I do believe that there is merit in what Sinn Féin is saying in terms of the cost of living and the need for emergency intervention those on low and middle incomes are finding it hard to make ends meet because of the rise in the cost of living everything has gone up in price and we're facing into a winter of uncertainty how are we going to be able to afford to heat our homes we cannot wait until the budget and beyond for financial assistance thanks jane indrahotra I think uh, independent TD in Louth, Peter Fitzpatrick, would agree with a lot of what you've said.
10: I'm not going to say that the government has done nothing, but I'm going to say that the government needs to do more. In my consistency often in dog, I listen to my constituents, what has happened on the ground. People can't afford to put food on the table, uh, heat, and, heat, and, heat their homes, fuel their cars, shoes on their, on their children's, afraid to put on the cooker, washing machine, panning in they won't be able to buy books, on uniforms for their children, and minister, don't forget the kids have only got their holidays, and they're taking about six weeks going forward. Ministers, uh, uh, people are you know, uh, pensioners living in old ha- in old houses unable to heat them, people with a disability unable to access services, families are unable to find rental accommodation. Telling me about all the the the, 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 uh, the empty buildings around the town, lying empty, and there seems to be no urgency in bringing them back so that these families can have the, the homes that badly needed.
2: And Peter Fitzpatrick told the doll yes, uh, uh, about some of the stories he was hearing in his constituency.
10: The amount of people coming to my constituency office telling me now lately that they'd be better off in social welfare. A young married man with two children came into my office last Friday, minister crying, can't afford to look after his family. He goes to work in Dublin every, every day, five days a week. His few bills has doubled and he can't cope anymore. The war he used was enormous pressure. He was told by his landlord that he must vacate his property, that he's, that he's leasing the present. He went looking for a new accommodation. It's impossible to find, but found one. but he could not afford the 1,800 euros asking price. He'd done a lot of searching lately and found out that he'd be better off if he left his job and went on social welfare. He would then be able to, to uh, get the, the, 50, the 1,150 euros hap to his rent, wouldn't have to drive to Dublin to work, get all the benefits that he was entitled to, medical cards, etc., Minister, he does not want to go down this road, but he has no option. But your government can help him.
2: That's just one story, but the cost of living is going up for all of us.
10: Minister, if you also look, down Minister, at the cost of living in Ireland for a family of four, it's estimated at a monthly loss of three thousand and seventy-two euros and seventy-two cents, and without rent. So, if you add rent to this, it's over four and a half thousand per month, fifty-four thousand a year. That's before you pay taxes. Minister really shocked me there during the week when he held flag the Free Legal Advice Centre, uh, 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 stating that families can't afford clothes or shoes for the children. And the shoes that are wearing are, are open-toes. Minister, that is a, that's, to me is a, is a very low level. Families, families have come to a breaking point. Inflation has soared to its highest level since the 1980s, 8.3% in May. And person President Michael D. Higgins stabbing sla- 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 the government housing challenges as a great, great failure, stating that, that it's not a crisis but it's a disaster. Why won't this government react now? It has the resources to help these families, pensioners, students, frontline staff, only a few. The money is there for your government to help the people in Ireland who have built this great country over the years they deserve to be looked after now thank you not later
2: that's uh, Peter Fitzpatrick uh, speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday during leaders questions uh, calling for an emergency budget it was uh, the subject of a Sinn Féin motion the night before and then defeated it in uh, the Dáil last night Stephen and Cals was on the phone to us and Stephen says he he can't wait until Sinn Féin get into government to see all the great things that they're going to do they seem to have the answer to everything and will be under a lot of pressure to deliver well thanks uh, for taking the time To ring us and tell us that Stephen, uh, somebody else uh, in touch by WhatsApp, saying, Michael, it's inevitable that Sinn Fein will claim the next general election, but having listened to their free-for-all policy, especially when it comes to housing, that in itself is laughable. If people are thinking that by having Mary Lou and her associates in office that it'll be a game-changer, they need their heads checked because it'll be much of the same old. Indeed, Mary Lou herself knows all too well about living the lavish life of every politician in the country and using the cost of living in driving their political football. People of Ireland, wake up, says Francie who sent us that. Thanks, Francie, uh, for that uh, strong message on WhatsApp. Another message uh, on WhatsApp following uh, the interview with Mary Lou MacDonald this morning saying, fair play to Mary Lou. We could listen to you all day. Uh, I think it's Mary Lou uh, that the Dave and Drogheda could listen to all day uh, she says or he says she answered you very politely what a lady uh, thanks Dave I, I, I presume it's Mary Lou you could listen to all day and not me but I, I do hope that when I asked Mary Lou questions I asked her the questions equally as politely as Mary Lou MacDonald answered them thank you indeed for your message Dave and Drogheda Michael,
6: Michael
2: Reed on, on LMFM FM. The Society of St Vincent de Ball has also submitted its pre-budget submission. The cost of surviving is uh, the theme and in their submission they say that the gap uh, between social uh, welfare rates and the cost of a minimum essential standard of living is €49. There's 200,000 children living in enforced deprivation. 29% of renters in this country are worried about being evicted in the next six months. 25% of parents are getting into debt in order to cover the back-to-school costs. 37% of people are cutting back on essential heating and electricity due to rising costs. And over 250,000 customers are in arrears on their electricity bills. Let's speak to Izzy Petri, who's research and policy officer with uh, the Society of St Vincent de Paul. Good morning to you Izzy and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. You've been looking uh, at uh, the standard of living that people have been experiencing in this country for many years with Vincent de Paul. Uh, When has it been uh, as bad as this? When was it last as bad as this?
11: Well, as you say, the situation is really really serious and concerning at the moment and We're in a situation where research released a couple of weeks ago by the ESRI actually showed that energy poverty is at the highest recorded rate since, I think, the the 90s. So the situation is really serious, which is why we're calling um, on the government to, to use the upcoming budget, the budget this year, to protect people who are experiencing poverty or they're at risk of experiencing poverty from the rising cost of living. And we really need to see kind of high levels of ambition and targeting of those resources that are available towards people who are at highest risks of the things you just outlined, things Mm. like energy poverty, really struggling to pay for back-to-school costs, struggling to pay for the rent and the food.
2: Mm. Yeah, and we're looking into some very hard times. Uh, The seashock, Mihal Martin, uh, warned us uh, in the doll this week uh, that there's going to be a very difficult winter ahead of us.
11: Yeah, it does look like that is going to be the case, which is why we've got a focus in our pre-budget submission on energy and the the steps government can take to support people with their energy costs. And one of the key things there is the fuel allowance, which, you know, we'd all know is really important, I Mm. suppose lifeline to many people, but... At the moment, it doesn't actually reach everybody that needs it, so we would really focus on recommending that it reaches people on the working family payments, so families who are in work, but uh, on, on low levels of earnings, so that it reaches them too, but also that the fuel allowance is increased this year to reflect those, those really uh significant increases we've all seen in our energy costs in electricity and gas and oil.
2: By €15 a week?
11: Yeah, yeah, Yeah. that's what we're calling for and to pay it for an extra four weeks of the year as well.
2: Right, okay. Uh, And uh, indeed I I think everybody is going to uh, see Uh, their energy bills increase as we get back uh, to the winter months the colder weather and indeed have to start turning the heat on again but that's not the only challenge that lies ahead of us we're seeing increases across the board uh, and for those who are on fixed income and lower incomes uh, it's going to be all the more difficult you're looking for a 20 euro increase in social welfare rates.
11: Yeah, we are. And that, that reflects the rising cost of living um, that's happening at the moment. So we're calling for an extra 20 euros a week for, for the adult rate and also increases for children too. And this is a really targeted way of supporting people who are at risk of poverty and making sure that they are able to keep up with those week to week rising costs um, through, having, through having enough income and through having that kind of essential protection there that comes through our social welfare system. that that's what the system is for, and it's really important that it is, I suppose, robust enough and well-resourced enough to, uh, to protect people. And, and that's something we saw during the pandemic with the introduction of the pandemic unemployment payment, that, that level of ambition from government to step in and use the social protection system mm. uh, to, to really kind of protect people from, from the worst impacts.
2: Uh, 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 and would that be sufficient to keep uh, people's head above water?
11: So that would that would reflect uh rises in the cost of living that we've seen but it's also important to um point out that there is already a gap between social welfare rates and what is needed for people to meet their essential cost of living that gap i think you mentioned at the beginning is around 50 euros so so there is still that gap and we would like to see a long-term plan um, from government to to kind of bridge that gap in the coming years and make up that extra room that people see, you know, when they have to make compromises week to week because social welfare rates don't actually cover an essential standard of living in Ireland.
2: Mm. And you're seeing uh, the uh, upshot of all this firsthand. Uh, St. Vincent de Paul uh, spent €14.6 million last year helping people to buy food alone. You were talking about energy costs uh, 4 0.1 0.1 million helping people with utility costs and close to 5 million 4.7 million uh, helping people uh, to access education.
11: Yeah, so those are those are some of the figures that reflect uh, I guess the assistance that we we've, we've given people and we are seeing our calls up against last year. So um that does I think reflect the scale of what people are facing and what we're facing this year Um, and you know as you said their back-to-school costs would be would be would really impact families and families are already having to prepare for that additional cost that's coming in a few months time they're already looking at budgeting around that Mm,
2: and uh, it's one of the things uh, that you're calling for Uh, uh, again if I can uh, say that uh, because uh, I think you've been calling for free education for years on end
11: yeah, it would be one of our repeated asks that there needs to be genuinely free primary and secondary education so that access is kind of on on equal levels between all students. So we're calling for increased funding through the capitation grants to schools so that voluntary contributions or so-called voluntary contributions can end.
2: Okay, we have a housing crisis in this country. We've had one for the last 10 years and uh, you've uh, a lot to say about that, not just increasing the amount of social houses available to people in this country, but what is paid to help people access accommodation, uh, because quite often people are in receipt of HAP, uh, but they have to top that up uh, and you uh, want that to end.
11: Yeah, absolutely. We're calling for increases in the housing assistant payment level so that people don't have to then top up um, their rent to their landlord from from the rest of their income, which is one of it's one of the main reasons we see that can push people into hardship is that they're having to find kind of that extra top-up payment um, from month to month from the rest of their income, and that causes them to directly have to cut back on things like, you know, uh, paying for their energy costs or paying for their food costs because they have to prioritise um, Giving that payment to their landlord so that they they don't face the risk of eviction. So we think that that's you know that's an unsustainable situation, and we and we kind of see the direct imp- impact of that. So we are calling for an end of uh, to the practice of these unaffordable top ups on the HAT payment. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I'm sure you welcomed the reports this morning, as a uh, that the budget normally held in October might be brought forward by a month, uh, and we might have a, a budget announced in September.
11: Yeah, so whether, whether the budget is, is brought forward or not, the government does have the choice, for example, about when it implements those payments. Um, in, a, in the usual year, social welfare payments don't go straight through in October. And that is something that the government could look at bringing those forward. Last year, I think the fuel allowance was, was brought forward where the increases were put through immediately. And that is definitely something we would support.
2: Okay. We'll leave it there for the moment, Izzy. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. That's Izzy Petrie, who's the Research and Policy Officer with uh, the Society of St. Vincent de Paul.
6: Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM,
2: on LMFM. Uh, As you know, members of uh, the Army are to be deployed uh, to Dublin Airport to, to help out if there's staff shortages at the airport which will lead to the kind of big delays that we've seen recently?
4: At this stage it's unclear to me what what, what, what the deployment entails, however uh, it would be very unusual if we weren't to deploy in uniform first and foremost. Um, I suppose most recently we we, we were deployed to the airport as part of the mandatory quarantine scheme so we have a certain familiarity out there and we'd have a knowledge and, and, and know some of the the people and security staff that are out there, um, yes, it, it would appear, I think the Minister was uh, explained in his own interviews yesterday that it would be non-public facing roles, that it would be more dealing with uh, transport gates and service gates, so staff gates. is what I'm told
2: Right, so that's uh, the president of RACO, Commandant Martin Ryan speaking to me yesterday Let's speak to Sinn Féin's spokesperson on transport, Darren O'Rourke TD for me the East Good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning Uh, Have you any better understanding of what will be involved in this and how it'll work and what do you make of it?
1: No, we, we, I don't have, have a clear understanding and I think um, you've heard from RACO and I think PD4, uh, the representative group uh, have have raised similar issues in terms of exactly what the, the brief will be and what will be expected of them and I hear from the Minister this morning that um, this is going to become operational from the 6th of July which is next Wednesday so, so time is of the essence in relation to it it does seem quite chaotic you know it was only a couple of weeks ago where uh, the Dublin Airport Authority, the DAA were before the Oractus the Transport Committee and were specifically asked mm-hmm. if there was a role for for the army and they had, had ruled it out. They said that um you know there was a pinch point at the airport at that at that time and the army couldn't serve a practical role. I would have thought that um you It's know, handy
2: though that soldiers are sitting around with nothing to do uh and that They've all the time in the world to be going out and running the airport for the DAA, isn't it?
1: Yeah, well, I, I, wouldn't imagine that's the case at all. And I think um, you know some, some of the concern we've heard from Raco and, and PD Fora is that um, the the army haven't been consulted in relation to this. That obviously this is you know it's 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 an emergency situation, but it's an an emergency that's been running on for quite some time and that has been flagged. So there's you know there there, there was time to prepare. Time to consult. Time to engage. Um, I, I heard from Dalton Phillips, um, the CEO at the That you know it may be roles in relation to cargo, in relation to fueling, in relation to, uh, as you heard from from the representative from RACO, yeah. in, in, in terms of the you know some of the the the, the airside um, staff-related functions. But it's not it's not at all clear. I'm sure you know as as is always the case, mm-hmm. the defence forces will step in and step up. When, when, when required. But it does yeah. give a real impression of. But what
2: does that mean? Can any private, profit-making or company for profit call on the army for help if uh, they're short of staff?
1: No, I, I, I wouldn't think so. No, I, w- I wouldn't think so. And that, that wouldn't be appropriate at all. But I, I think the, the the bigger point, and it's, it's directly related to that, Michael, is that you know, this is, a, this is a case of mismanagement um, and you know, uh, that, that assessment the amount of staff that were let go and uh, um, you know, this is, a, this is a contingency and it's important mm. to have contingency but if you look at it, you know, one step after another, it is a chaotic uh, picture that is painted yeah. and even that sense that you know, three weeks ago there's no role for the army uh, and, and now all of a sudden there is
2: mm. um, and, and, and people would they, have argued they they have that was it yeah, something yeah, needed to but, be done uh, wh- wh- how do you feel about it do you support I mean it is an emergency it's been a national embarrassment it's been uh, atrocious uh, and uh, we can lay blame wherever but uh, here we are uh, do, do you support the idea of bringing in the army to solve that problem?
1: look I, I I have consistently held the position that everything needed to be on the on the table in terms of contingency in terms of backup in terms of backups to backups mm. so in principle I don't have an issue with this if it uh, helps thing things move smoothly
2: do you have an issue with the the, the members of the defense Forces, the individual army uh, soldiers being paid an allowance of 225
1: an hour no the, the the, the real concern i have in relation to this michael is the way it has been managed or mismanaged and again those those issues uh, uh, in terms of the terms and conditions mm. like it would be you know completely uh, in, inappropriate um, you know it's uh, nearly
2: free labor though isn't it
1: yeah no that's that's it you know and, and i think that there there's a concern that has been raised there that um, that the the army you know the army have been disrespected the defense forces have been disrespected and you know with many very many in my own constituency um, who, who, who I meet on a regular basis and they talk about the terms and conditions, they talk about the, you know, they talk about being on family income supplement um, whilst being members of the Defence Forces literally needing state support on top of, of their of their wage to make ends meet. It's, you know, uh, completely unsatisfactory. And then the notion that... There a stop gap um, you know uh, as you said a a, a cheap form of, of labor is it's, it's a, you know it, it is um, uh, uh, entirely unsatisfactory and that 's why the, the details of um what, you know in the first instance there there needs to be a recognition of the, the the, the, the defense Force is stepping in and saving the day if you like and and playing a really important role and that needs to be recognized and remunerated to, to an appropriate level uh, um, and you know if 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 it's not going to be further insult to injury um, those uh, you know those terms and conditions need to be um, uh, worked out in advance but again, if we're saying here on the 30th of, of June that this is going to be operational on the on the 6th of July and there are so many unanswered questions it, it would raise significant concern.
2: Okay. Well, here we are. Uh, I want to talk to you about the hospital if I can. The Irish Times is reporting today that a private meeting of the HSE board was held yesterday and Jack Horgan Jones tells us that the CEO Paul Reid and the chief Clinical officer Dr. Colum Henry updated the HSE board on the plans to close the emergency department at Our Ladies' Hospital in Navan, and that the board has given strong backing to continue with the HSE's plan to close the ED at Our Lady's in Navan. Uh, there's no stopping that train, it seems.
1: Yeah, and and, and this is a you know a deeply concerning and deeply worrying because. Um, uh, we have stated our position i know michael uh yourselves and and at significant you know significantly across the the, the media there's been lots of discussion in relation to Navan hospital and i would argue that uh, um you know from from a clinical perspective there is uh, one particular uh dimension of the risk um i think there you know there's accusations that politicians particularly opposition politicians, aren't uh, 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 acknowledging that there is a risk at Navin Hospital. That I- is not the case at all. Our deep concern, my deep concern, is that the HSE solution, uh, uh, so-called solution, will make matters worse and actually will transfer the risk from Navin Hospital to an already overcrowded Drogheda Hospital. And I haven't heard... What makes you say all. that? What makes me say that? A couple of things. First of all, uh, clinicians Whom? on the front, clini- clinicians but on the front line—they haven't
2: um, gone on the record.
1: Yeah, which is you know, and, and, and they, they have outlined to me, Michael, oh. why why you know. I, I, well,
2: well, you're asking us to take us at your word, uh, take statements that have been made to you at face value.
1: I, I, I am, Michael, yeah. but but, but yeah, I am, and you know. But there's, uh, there's
2: clinicians on the record saying people will die.
1: Yeah, there are. And and to be fair, I have read some media reports, you know, from Jack Horgan-Jones and others who, who, you know, have referenced uh, the information that I have that say that they have been informed that there are clinicians with deep concerns, that they have documented those deep concerns.
2: Are they not allowed to go on the record or why have they not gone on the record?
1: yeah I, I don't want to to speak for them in that regard, but, but Michael, they have outlined to me why they don't want to go on the. well they couldn't but, be
2: but, they couldn't please. be that worried or or else they're being censored or gagged. Please.
1: Yeah, so, so so there may be an element of that, but but I I would make this point, Michael. They they shouldn't need to come on the public airwaves. They have outlined a concern. They have outlined that concern. But those
2: concerns have been taken on board by Paul Reid, by Colin Henry, Gerry McIntyre, whoever else, and they've all come to the conclusion that it is unsafe uh, to continue with emergency service uh, department services in, in our ladies.
1: Well, in the first instance, I. I not the case that those concerns have been taken on board. And we met on the 13th of, of June. The HSE had, you know, 11 years, 10 years to prepare a plan and right across the political spectrum, government and opposition, you'll hear from, from representatives that there are very many unanswered questions in terms of capacity at Trahada. It was a work in progress in terms of capacity in the, in the community and in the ambulance services. There was, you know, there was no plan in place at all. So, so my deep concern is that this medical assessment unit that has been proposed it will not work so what will happen in practical terms is that people the, uh, that people will realize that Navin Hospital is not the place to go if the, if, if the ED closed and they will all go or in very significant numbers not just five a day in very significant numbers in excess of five a day, go to an already overcrowded Drogheda hospital. Now, the HSE have no plan in place to deal with that. They haven't even considered that. And that's a very obvious concern. It's a concern that I have, but also clinicians on the front line. Well,
2: it's not that overcrowded. It's one of the best performing hospitals in the country. And instead of going to one of the best performing hospitals in the country, the concern is that if people are brought to Navin, they could die unnecessarily.
1: I, I, I know that because well actually Michael first of all if you if you look at the you know the the most recent uh, audit of our hospitals and uh, uh in, in 2020 um navan hospital performs very well um compared to compared to other hospitals and you know other hospitals uh, that are performing worse there's there's no suggestion that that they're going to be closed or that the eds they are going to be closed we, you know there's no suggestion that the E D as as, as uh, limerick is is going to be closed so the suggestion michael that the only solution here is to pursue the course of action that the HSE are proposing is a position that I do not agree with. Mm. I, I firmly believe that there is an alternative there, which involves inve- the protection of existing services and the enhancement of services at Navan Hospital through investment. Now, I have outlined a proposition uh, that, mm. that has been told to me. Now, I understand. And we put that, that proposition th- exactly, exactly that. I pr- know. I know. I know. To Gerry
2: McIntyre, and he dismissed it out of I, hand.
1: I I know, I know you have, uh, Michael, and I heard that response. I also heard from from other clinicians in, in the, the Navin area, GPs, that said the only way to improve Navin Hospital would be to quadruple the capacity at the hospital. So, So you have differences of opinion in relation to it, and I am not satisfied, and I believe... Other representatives are not satisfied. And if I hear from the minister, I believe he's not satisfied that all of those details, all of those options have been adequately considered. And that's, uh, a, you know, Mm. and and that's going to be uh, a very uh, busy
2: meeting tonight, isn't it? Uh, The Save Navin Hospital meeting. Uh, I'm told you will be attending.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's a priority for me. And I know for my, my colleague, uh, Johnny Gorkin in, in Midwest as well, we, we will be attending and encouraging people to come along and to come along in huge numbers uh, on, on the 9th of July at 1pm at in, in Navan yeah. to you know, send a very clear message to, to government that we want to protect and enhance services at Navin Hospital, not close our ED.
2: OK, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Now, that is Sinn Féin TD for Me the Star O'Rourke.
6: Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM.
2: The Environmental Protection Agency is reporting today on inspections carried out on 1,147 septic tanks and other domestic water, wastewater treatment systems in 2021. As you've been hearing in the bulletins, 53% of those systems failed inspections because they hadn't been built or maintained properly. Uh, and close to a third, Twenty-nine percent of uh, the systems inspected were considered to be a risk to human health or to the environment. Let's speak to Stephen McCarthy of uh, the EPA. A very good morning to you, Stephen, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, It's not that long ago since these systems weren't inspected. Was this not always the case that these things were faulty? Good
4: morning, yes. the, the, The inspection system started in 2013. Um, and um, that failure rate you spoke about, half of 70 times failing inspection, has pretty much been consistently the case since the, um, the inspections uh, started up. Um, we've been reported each year, and it generally generally uh, falls around 50% of systems failing. So it has found that there was problems there that were obviously pre-existing, um, and uh, they fall into two 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 categories really of pro- of difficulty. One is. Uh, systems not being maintained. So some people have mechanical plants uh, that need to be serviced uh, and then for the majority that just have a septic tank even that should be should be cleaned out periodically every three to four years and that's not being done quite often. And the other uh, more serious issues that are seen are cases where systems are leaking or ponding mm. in gardens or discharging to ditches and streams and they're very concerning Both there's a risk to human health uh, from exposure to sewage or potential pollution of groundwater and wells mm. um, and, and, and environmental. And okay. it's, it's important yeah. to understand as well, for many people in the countryside that have these systems, they, they will also have a drinking water well. They'll be reliant they won't have mains water somewhere, mm. but many don't. There's hundred and sixty five thousand households out there that have both. So um, it's very important the septic tank system is working properly. Okay. Not polluting groundwater, not polluting mm. your well or your
2: and and there could be yeah. drinking wastewater or the runoff from the septic tanks. Uh, but this is really just a, a sample, isn't it? Because there's only so many septic tanks that you can you in you in It's year. It's the, uh, councils, yeah. the local the that inspect them. inspect them.
4: Yeah, there's um there's a uh, half a million septic tanks uh nationwide. Um In Loud, there's 10,000 roughly registered, which is about uh, 2% nationally. So uh, there's a lot of septic tanks in Ireland. Uh, We're highly reliant on it for for treatment of wastewater in the countryside. And uh, the minimum number of inspections, it tends to be a little higher, but the minimum number is 1,000 per annum. So uh, while it's an absolutely number, it's quite a lot of inspections. I mean, it's running up to nearly 10,000 now at this stage. But, uh, yeah, there's a lot of septic tanks out there that obviously aren't, we're not getting to local authorities can't get to and the, the figures would indicate that there's there's more widespread problems okay. and, and really, the- really what we want people to understand I guess are the risks which I spoke about already uh, and also what they can do in relation to it because people can act to maintain these systems properly and where problems are found
2: um, they should be able to address them really Okay uh, and uh, the failure rate in uh, uh was probably one of uh, the better counties at 20% uh, the failure rate in, in County Mead there were 71 inspections 95, 94% of those failed the inspection uh, that's very worrying isn't it?
4: Yeah, no, the inspection failure rates can vary um, both county to county. Um, Septic tanks are highly reliant on on good ground conditions really to function correctly. Uh, The effluent at the end of the day, the sewage goes into the ground, and that's where some of the treatment takes place uh, in the top layer of the soil. So that can vary across the country, and you tend to get higher failure rates where there's more challenging soils. And then it can vary from year to year within local authorities, depending on how they're targeting their inspections from year to year. They might be focused on more high risk areas and so on so um that's that's unusually high for, mm. even for me that's higher than previous years but uh, obviously it's extremely concerning but the the overall the overall failure rate itself um, I think just is, is sends a message really that there's a need for a, a an increase in standards around maintenance. Uh, our activity and, and householders themselves to, you know, check their septic tanks, make sure that they're not, there's no obvious problems like mm. ponding and, and discharges to streams. And what we'd also be saying is also check your well. If you have a well, get it tested. That's a relatively mm. low-cost thing to do at least once per year um, and, and give yourself that comfort because that failure rate, even though it's low and low, 20%, it's indicator mm. of that there's, there's 20% across all of the, the septic tanks, probably, if not higher, Right. Loud and for any individual, the statistics don't matter. If you have a problem, what matters is that you you personally could uh, have an issue there that that's a, a risk to human health. To, uh, do you think it I follows avoid.
2: then that 95% of uh, the septic tanks in County Mead would fail an in inspection? Uh, and there were 299 inspections uh, carried out between 2013 and 21 in County Mead, uh, and 73% of those have been fixed, uh, which means obviously that 27% of them haven't.
4: Yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's 94% across the board for the reasons I said earlier, it, it can vary year to year depending on, on, on areas you're focused on. But look, like I said, 50% is, is, is the national average, and I think that's probably a good indication. Um, the issue around closing, um, so the inspection, uh, the way it works is if you're going to be inspected, you'll be given notice first um, in advance, and then the inspection's conducted. And if, if, this, if it fails, the householder is issued what's called an advisory notice by the local authority, and they'll be given a period of time to fix the issues in it. And for the most part, people do. Um, I mean if we look back mm. across the, 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 the inspection system uh, three quarters of people have reacted and, and corrected, the, corrected the problems and there's grants available as well yeah. but there are a cohort, there's 500 cases across the country that are open more than two years and those are the ones that are really concerning to us. That yeah, uh,
2: not, what's uh, the consequence for people who, who don't fix after failing
4: an the inspection? consequences uh, and, and the local authority um, it, part of their job is to follow up in relation to advisory notices and make sure they're dealt, the issues are dealt with and ultimately it's an offence, it's an offence for the householder not to comply with the notice uh, and that's potentially subject to prosecution in the courts and and a fine up to 5,000 and the person would still have to fix the system so that's not really somewhere people want to go we've documented there there's been 36 legal proceedings uh, across the country so far in relation to it. So that's ultimately um, uh, the sanctioning of it, of it, of it, of it or, um in relation to it. The, the help that's there is the grant system that's available so people should check that out um, and, uh, and the other motivation obviously is I think people would want themselves to have a sustainable wastewater system yeah in Uh, their property long term, uh, you know. uh, And
2: nobody wants uh, what's coming out of their septic tanks to be in their drinking water. Stephen, I'm over time. I have to leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much indeed. Stephen McCarthy of uh, the Environmental Protection Agency brings our programme to its conclusion. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye.
1: The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now, michael at lmfm.ie.
4: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter.